Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for coming to this very special session of Nursing Grand Rounds. I'm Deb Hastings, and I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and we are very, very happy to welcome our guest speaker today. And we also welcome folks who are joining us from their computers, in their office, or in their homes, so welcome to all of you as well. Today we are going to learn about one nurse researcher's journey feeding tubes, post-op nausea and vomiting, and nurse bullying. Oh my, I love that. I love that. <laughs> the purpose of this presentation is to highlight how a direct care nurse can lead research to improve healthcare outcomes on a department level, organizational level, and on a national level. Learner outcomes include the following, that you will be able to name three ways that frontline nurses at the University of Virginia Health System have transformed healthcare through nursing research, and that you will be able to identify one topic that you're interested in studying as a nurse participating in research at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Before we begin, I do have a few housekeeping tasks to complete. After this program, you will receive an email from the Center for uh, Learning and Professional Development, and that's the form of CCEHS. You'll receive a link to an online evaluation. Within two weeks' time, your credit will be posted to your online transcript. And we really do value your feedback, so we hope you'll take just a few minutes to complete that evaluation when you receive it. <clears throat> if you're here, you must sign in and attend at least 80% of the program in order to receive your credit. For those viewing online, if you have any questions during the presentation, you may email them to Judy Langhans, and that's judith.m as in Mary, dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. She will share your questions with the speaker at the end of the presentation. She'll be monitoring her email throughout the presentation. Also, for folks viewing online, please email Judy within one hour of completion of the presentation. She'll need your name, degree, and zip code, and then she will register your attendance. There are uh, instructions on how to access your transcript either here at the sign-in sheet or for folks who are viewing on your computer, please contact Judy directly for those instructions. We want you to know that neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or a relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. So at this time, I would like to introduce our Chief Nursing Officer, Dr. Gay Landstrom, who will introduce our guest speaker. Well, it is my great pleasure um, to introduce to you uh, Rebecca Gilbert. Um, Rebecca and I met earlier this year when I was actually doing a magnet visit um, at University of Virginia, and um, I was just so impressed by some of the work that they were doing there um, with frontline nurses doing really, really great research. And I was pleased that Rebecca was willing to come and share uh, about the research she has been doing and about her journey. 
Just a little bit about uh, Rebecca. Uh, she began uh, as a nurse with an associate degree um, in uh, 1999, 93. And um, she worked in a variety of clinical areas, particularly in pediatrics. Um, she also um, was involved in pediatric intensive care, um, pediatric rehabilitation, and then moved to pediatric care in the PACU in the post-anesthesia care unit. Um, there she serves as a member of a three-nurse pediatric post-operative recovery team, which is a, a fascinating specialty. For her organization, she also serves as a resource um, in shared governance, clinical practice, evidence-based practice, and in nursing research. Um, she, that, that, um, I'm sure she's going to tell you uh, more about that, but that real spark um, and interest in nursing research began with her participation in University of Virginia's uh, Nurse Research Mentor Program, um, which we um, here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock are going to be starting our Nursing Research Fellowship Program, um, which really um, bears uh, quite a resemblance um, in, in many respects to what they did at University of Virginia. Um, so we're excited that that we're going to be starting with our first cohort of um, nurses interested in learning how to do research and answer those burning questions for the sake of our, our um, patients. And she currently, um, along with her clinical practice, uh, leads a 16-member perioperative research team um, where they're doing some wonderful work answering questions about how to really improve care for patients. Um, she, uh, while she began uh, with an associate degree in 2011, she'd gone back, got her bachelor's degree in 12, her master's, and um, she just has completed her DNP um, this year. So congratulations to you and welcome, Rebecca. <laughs> Thank you. Um, first off, I just want to thank Gay for inviting me. I'm so excited to be here. I feel very honored to be here to talk to you guys. And thank you all for coming to hear what I have to say about frontline nurses involved in research at the University of Virginia. So we have an awful lot to cover in an hour, so I'm just going to dig right in. So again, I'll just say that um, there's two objectives for this presentation. First, I'm hoping that at the end you'll each be able to name three ways that frontline nurses at UVA have transformed healthcare through nursing research. And that objective hopefully won't be too difficult for us to meet because I'm going to tell you about the three studies that I've actually been the principal investigator for and the outcomes of those studies and how my team and I are transforming healthcare as a result of those studies. And next, I hope that you'll each be able to leave here with an idea, something that you can identify, just one topic that you would be interested in studying as a nurse who would participate in research here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Now, I'm not going to suggest that everybody walk out of this room and become a principal investigator and lead your own study, but some of you may do just that, and that's amazing. But you can also participate in research by being a member of a research team and contributing to research that way. So just think of something, some question you've had. Why do we do it this way? Isn't there a better way? Or so on and so forth. And come up with some idea that you're interested in. So first, I'll tell you a little bit more about me. I did graduate from nursing school in 1993, and I worked in a small community hospital. I worked in oncology for a little while, and that really wasn't for me. And I went to the coronary care unit and really enjoyed it. I also did some um, and 
I did some infusion nursing, I did some home health, so a little variety of things. And I'll tell you that in those first eight years of my nursing career, the words evidence-based practice and research never entered my vocabulary. They just were not part of the culture that I was in. But in 2001, my family and I moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, and I joined the PICU at the University of Virginia. And pretty quickly, I noticed that there was just a different climate at the University of Virginia. We're an academic medical center, just like Dartmouth-Hitchcock is, or your facility. And there was a real culture of research, and not just physicians doing research, but nurses doing research, generating new knowledge and improving outcomes. And so in those beginning years of my career at UVA, I was involved in several practice committees, the PICU Practice Committee and the Children's Hospital Practice Committee. And through those committees, I worked with others to bring evidence to the bedside. So we translated research that other teams had done and how could we use that research to improve the care to our patients. Well, in 2008, I had worked with some evidence-based practice projects, worked as a sub-investigator on a couple of studies, and decided that I was going to try my hand at becoming a principal investigator, leading a study. And so we have what's known as the Nursing Research Mentorship Program, and Gay has told me, you guys are going to do something very similar here, and it's a really cool program because the way our structure is, is for somebody who wants to be a principal investigator, you are mentored by others, the director of the research mentorship program and others who have been in the, the principal investigator role. And it's sort of a pay it forward program. While you're being mentored in your role, you're mentoring frontline nurses to participate in research. And I understand that's similar to what you guys are gonna do and I think you're gonna love it because it's, it's really a neat model. I'll tell you just a quick bit about the UVA Nursing Research Mentorship Program. It was started in 2004 by the great Susie Burns. Now, has anyone here ever heard of Susie? Yay! Susie is nothing but 50 shades of amazing. I don't know if you know Susie, but she is the most accomplished nurse researcher that I know, and she started the Nursing Research Mentorship Program. We'll talk a little bit more about her in a moment. She was important to one of the studies we did. Um, to date, 78 mentors have been trained, and the program is an application process, and then you're accepted. So within the last three months, eight new mentors have been accepted into the program. Now, every single one of these research mentors are frontline nurses at the University of Virginia. To date, 68 studies have been completed, and 28 of those studies have been published in peer-reviewed journals. One of them I'm going to tell you about has been published in a peer-reviewed journal. And actually, the second one we'll talk about, the post-op nausea and vomiting study, has just been accepted to be um, published in JOPAN, the Journal of Perianesthesia Nursing. And all 65 studies have been disseminated at conferences, either through posters or podium presentations. So when I first was accepted as a research mentor, there was one thing I knew for sure, and that was that I wanted to lead a very small local study just within the PICU, something that wouldn't overwhelm me in my new role. And so I sent out a call for research participants, and four of my colleagues in the PICU answered the call that they wanted to be part of whatever we did. And so we were batting around all sorts of ideas, but we hadn't actually decided on anything yet. 
until one morning when I walked into the PICU and heard about a nurse who had been a PICU nurse for many years who placed a feeding tube into a child overnight, which we did every day. It was part of our normal work. We thought it was very innocuous, but she actually accidentally went into the child's lung and through the child's lung, causing some problems. Well, I had never heard of this happening and neither had most of my colleagues in the PICU. But our attending that day said, well, yeah, I've heard of this happening. I've actually seen it happen. And one of our travelers said, yep, I've seen it too. So this was something that the PICU staff was really interested in and, and talking about. So myself and my team wondered, first of all, was there any evidence out there about ways to make that process safer? And if not, is this something that we could impact? So we did a literature search and we found a couple of things. And the first thing was that children of all ages, from newborn to teenagers, had suffered the ill consequences of misplaced feeding tubes into their lungs. Now, I'm not going to tell you this is a high volume problem. It's a very low incidence problem. But when it happens, it's very high risk. Things that could be just discomfort or a chest tube secondary to a pneumothorax or intubation and ventilation or death. So it is a high risk problem. But we found something else, too. And that was that unlike the adult population, techniques to improve that process for children had not been studied at all. So the name of our study was Increasing the Safety of Blind Gastric Tube Placement in Pediatric Patients, the Design and Testing of a Procedure Using a Carbon Dioxide Detection Device. Now, does anyone here in the adult population or peds use a carbon dioxide detection device when you place feeding tubes? Do you all use that? Okay. Well, this is actually the, the instrument that we used. It's the Confirm Now device, and it was actually developed as a work of Susie Byrne, as a result of Susie Byrne's work. So Susie is very interesting. Not only is she an accomplished researcher and a medical intensive care nurse and faculty at the University of Virginia, she's a respiratory therapist. And she had noticed years before, in the early 2000s, this problem happening in the adult population. Well, she wondered, you know, when I'm a respiratory therapist and I'm intubating somebody, there's a colorimetric device that I can place on the end of the endotracheal tube. And if it stays purple, well, then that's a bad sign. I'm not in the airway. But if it turns yellow, then I've detected carbon dioxide and I am in the patient's airway. Well, she wondered about this technology in reverse. Could there be something placed on the end of a feeding tube that if it turned yellow, that would be a bad thing because if the filter paper identified carbon dioxide, that's when it would turn yellow, bad news. So Susie had actually worked on this with her MICU team with Rick Carpenter. I don't know if you know him, but anyway, um, it was a pretty robust team. And as a result of their work, um, Kendall and Covidian actually now came up with this device, which is the Confirm Now. So the Confirm Now was FDA approved for patients 15 kilos or greater, and our patients were largely 15 kilos and under. So we wondered, could we use this device in some way, shape, or form with children? Our research question was, will the use of a colorimetric carbon dioxide detector decrease the risk of inadvertent placement of gastric tubes into the lungs of pediatric patients during blind tube placement. So this was a replication study. Largely, we 
copied the work that Susie had done. That's one thing to know when you're doing research. If other people have researched it, don't invent the wheel. Do a replication study and try to add new evidence to whatever evidence they have brought to the table. Our procedure was adjusted slightly to suit for the smaller size pediatric feeding tubes because our feeding tubes went down to five French, very small, very pliable. And what we learned with the bellows that came with the Confirm Now device, and that was a, it's a little device, it's plastic, and you put it on the end of the Confirm Now device after it's connected to the feeding tube. And when you let go of it, it withdraws air through the tube, through the colorimetric device, and you have either purple or yellow color change. What we found by using the bellows with those small feeding tubes, it was actually collapsing the lumen of the tube, so it wasn't effective. So we threw the bellows out and we just used a 5cc syringe so we could just gently withdraw air through those tubes. And of course our study was patients newborn to 18 years. Now we're gonna jump right to results. There's a lot more information about this study as all the studies I'm gonna tell you about, but we have an hour. And so if any of you are interested after this in hearing more about the design or the statistics and the analysis and all that fun data stuff, I'm going to be here the rest of the day. I would love to talk to you about it, but we're going to scoot right on to results. So in the end, we had 60 children in our study. For 52 of those children, there was no color change. So we were placing the two, we withdrew air. We saw purple, not yellow. We advanced it to the pre-measured depth. We got an abdominal x-ray, which was our PICU standard, and we moved on. But for eight of these tubes, there was initial color change. Well, something we learned from Susie years ago is that just because you have a carbon dioxide detected, that doesn't mean that you're in the airway. And the reason why is because there can be carbon dioxide in the mouth or the back of the throat, especially in children who are crying and gasping. So we retested those eight, those eight tubes. For five of them, there was no persistent color change. We cleared it from the tube. We advanced it, we moved on. But for three of those tubes, after we cleared the tubes with room air and the colorimetric device with room air, there still was a yellow color change. So my question to you is, were all three of those tubes in the patient's airway? What do you guys think? We don't know, because we didn't get an x-ray. We have no idea. We are very confident that one of those tubes was in the child's airway. And the reason we feel so confident about that is because when we actually detach the Confirm Now device from that tube, we heard the child breathing through the tube. So that was a pretty dead giveaway. The other two were not sure because perhaps the tube was clogged with phlegm or surgilube and we just couldn't clear it. Either way, we wanted to take a safety step of potentially we're heading in the wrong direction and we pulled those tubes. So what we concluded is that the carbon dioxide sensing device during the blind placement of feeding tubes may be beneficial in the pediatric population as it is in the adult population. And actually, Susie and I published this in 2012. Now, I do know that there's other children's hospitals who have adopted this practice as we have at the University of Virginia. I do know there's two other children's hospitals who are doing replication studies, but I looked and they haven't been published yet. So I think it's gonna be really interesting in like the next year, year and a half or so, to see if those studies are out there or not, what other evidence is there. 
But time moved on and so did I, and I became a member of the PACU, working as Gay said, recovering children from general anesthesia. And when I joined the PACU, I joined a group that had been, many of them, working in the PACU for 15, 20, up to 30 years, a very robust group that was very clinically competent. But I also joined a team that had never been involved in frontline research. So from the get-go, that was one of my goals, to do some sort of research project with this group. And so probably my second month there, I presented at a staff meeting about some research that had been done in another PACU. And that study by a different group of researchers was looking at if patients emerged better in quiet environments, did they have less emergence delirium, less complaints of pain, less need for medications, narcotics, and sedatives. And what those researchers found was absolutely, yes, there was a correlation between a quieter environment and a, a better recovery for those patients. So there's a few things that PACU nurses are really turned on about, and that's emergence delirium, pain control, and post-operative nausea and vomiting. So myself and a group of 15 clinicians, in addition to me, chose to look at the use of short-term acupressure to decrease post-operative nausea and vomiting. And I'll tell you in a moment why we came up with that particular study. So when I went to the PACU, I'll admit I didn't know a lot about post-op nausea and vomiting, but I learned a lot pretty quickly from this team. I learned that post-op nausea and vomiting is a complication in 30% of surgical patients. And other than just being an unpleasant experience, it can lead to metabolic disarray and dehydration. It can lead to surgical site stress or surgical site dehiscence. It can lead to longer PACU lengths of stay or overall hospital lengths of stay. So it really is a big deal for those of us in the perioperative world. So again, the team wanted to do something about post-op nausea and vomiting, but they weren't sure what. Were we going to do something with aromatherapy? Were we going to do acupressure? What were we going to do? And we did a literature search. And we found that acupressure had been shown to prevent nausea and vomiting associated with pregnancy, chemotherapy, motion sickness, and potentially post-op nausea and vomiting. At the time, the, the data out there was really conflicted. Some Authors said absolutely it helps, and some says it's really just voodoo. So we wanted to look at that. Interestingly enough, there was a cohort in the PACU who really believed this was going to work. And the reason why is we had a couple of members of the team who were scuba divers and deep sea fisherwomen. And so they were very familiar with acupressure. And they said that in their practice, they had actually applied gentle fingertip pressure to their patients when they would complain of nausea. And what they realized was that these patients had a passing of their nauseous episode, episode and that they didn't have any emesis. So they really believed this was going to work. So we thought, well, let's look at it. Our research question, I'm going to tell you, this is a mouthful. Does acupressure to the P6 pressure point started in phase one, which is when they come into the PACU, and continued while in the PACU, we were looking at just what we could control for two hours or less, make a difference in the 24-hour postoperative nausea, vomiting, and antiemetic use as compared with having no acupressure applied to the P6 pressure point during the same period of time? So again, out of the 16 of us, I was the only one who had participated in frontline nursing research before. This study was and still is the only double-blind study that has been done through the Nursing Research Mentorship Program. The way we were able to double-blind it is our PACU is a huge open room with curtains. 
And when the patient would roll in, they were often asleep. And we would put the bracelet on them, the data collector for the day, who often I would do, or one of my team members, behind the curtain. On the other side of the curtain was the bedside nurse getting report. And we would wrap their wrist with lots of Curlex. So when the curtain was pulled, all the frontline bedside nurse saw was a patient with their wrist wrapped with Curlex. They didn't know if they had an acupressure band on or a sham band. And also, one of our exclusion criteria for the study was that the patient could not have any experience with acu-stimulation. This study actually crossed more units than any other study has in the research mentorship program. In addition to the PACU, a lot of our consents, the bulk of them, were, were um, obtained in the PETSI unit, which is the pre-anesthesia evaluation and testing center. And then our patients went to all adult acute care units, so they were all involved as well. And additionally, we had a gigantic sample size. And the reason our sample size was so big is because there had been lots of studies before that looked at very narrow populations, either lap coles or appendectomies or women, for example. And we, we really wanted to know, would our method work for the general surgical population? So we had very few exclusions. So unlike the first study I told you about that was a replication study, this was homegrown because we were testing the theory of our frontline staff. The instrument we used was the C-band, and that's commercially available. You can buy it at Walmart today, and it's used for nausea and vomiting. Um, it's basically, have any of you ever seen one? It's basically like a sweatband with a little button on it, and the little button is placed over the P6 pressure point, which is three finger widths above the fold of the wrist, and that's how um, nausea and vomiting are um, eliminated or decreased. We did collect data for 24 hours because we wanted to know would this thing that we're doing in the PACU have a long-term effect on these patients. So we collected three data points. One was the patient's subjective report of nausea. We collected that through the use of a nausea diary. When they left the PACU, we would let them go with a brightly colored piece of paper on a clipboard and a pen. And we instructed them to mark it whenever they felt nauseous. Now remember, nausea is subjective, so it's whatever the patient says it is. So if somebody is nauseous for six hours and checks at one time, that's their experience. If they check it 100 times, that too is their experience. It's very subjective. Our objective data points were emesis, which is documented in our EMR by our nurses, and antiemetics, which is also documented in our EMR. So in the end, we had 134 in our acupressure group and 136 in the control group. And unfortunately, we found no statistically significant difference in POINV while the bracelet was on or for the first 24 hours. Now, when we first got these results, I'm going to tell you there was a lot of wound licking going on. We were a sad little bunch. But we really had to dig deeper into what we found, and that may or may not tell the whole story. Because we collected data from all of these people. We got, had discussions with them, and we noticed a trend. And the trend was the patients in the control group who did not receive acupressure, but said, I've had surgeries. I've had two surgeries. I've had six surgeries. I've had eight surgeries. And after every one, I had lots of nausea and vomiting. But this time, I had little or none. Well, that was amazing, but they were in the control group. They did not receive acupressure. So there is a pretty strong belief among our team and among the experts in this field that there's a placebo effect to even having these bands on. 
I've also recently talked to an expert who said there's more than likely a placebo effect to the nurse who would take a patient's wrist and say, I'm going to apply some gentle pressure. This is going to help with your nausea and vomiting. So we uncovered some really cool things. And also, in the end, we probably did too little too late. There's a Cochrane review out right now that talks about the fact that acupressure probably does help with post-op nausea and vomiting, but the unanswered question is when should it be initiated and for how long should it be utilized? And so our method added to that evidence because this is probably not the best way to do it. So every study has a so what factor, like if there's no so what factor, really why are we doing the study? So what was the so what for this study? Well, we know that acupressure is administered in a wide variety of ways all over the world, and perhaps this way is not the way it should be done. We did generate new knowledge to help with the thought about the placebo effect and the timing question as brought forth through the Cochrane Review. And again, which I think is a win for frontline nurses, we have 15 new frontline nurse researchers. Some of them have been in that unit 20, 25 years, have never even considered research. Now, I don't think every one of these 15 nurses is going to be a principal investigator leading a study. There's a couple of them I guarantee will, and I believe many of them will go on to be investigators with the team on other projects. Well, we've got 30 minutes left, and that's um, half of our presentation. So this, this topic is going to be the rest of it. And the reason that this topic really is taking up a wide amount of this time we have together is because the first study I told you about really relates to pediatrics, and the second study I told you about really relates to surgical patients. But this topic relates to all of us. It infiltrates acute care units, critical care, inpatient and outpatient. So when I was a student in the DNP program, I was charged with coming up with some sort of capstone idea or doing some sort of original research. And my DNP had a nurse executive focus because I believe you don't have to be in the C-suite to make a difference. All of us are leaders as professional registered nurses. And I've always been interested in how relationships among the healthcare team affect healthcare outcomes. So in the end, after looking at lots of topics, I studied addressing the elephant in the room, the nurse manager recognition of and response to nurse-to-nurse -nurse bullying. Now, I have spoken on just this topic in many venues to many people, and whenever I do, I always start with this picture, and it's the elephant with Ignore Me written across his back. And the reason why is because nurse-to-nurse -nurse bullying is the elephant in the room of our profession. Y'all know that as nurses, we like to think of ourselves as the kind, caring, compassionate providers, and of our profession as the kind, caring, compassionate profession. And in terms of how we treat our patients and families, this is largely the truth. But in regard to how we treat each other, nurses are well known for their viciousness. So much so that in 1986, there was a pretty um, well-known phrase coined to describe it. Does anyone know what that phrase is? Nurses eat their young. What I've learned through my two-year journey studying this one topic is that nurses eat their young and they're old and everybody in between. We are a hungry bunch of people, that's for sure. <laughs> so nurse-to-nurse -nurse bullying, as I said before, is pervasive. It lives in, has lived in, or has the potential to live in every nursing environment around the world. It's also grossly underestimated, as is healthcare bullying as a whole. 20 years ago, in 1995, there was a, a landmark study done, just looking at relationships among the healthcare team.
And one of the pearls that came from that study was that one in three nurses actually had considered leaving their job because they felt bullied. Well, time went on, and in 2008, the Joint Commission made a strong connection between healthcare bullying and poor healthcare outcomes, and so they too sent out a survey. Their survey revealed that 90% of nurses had seen other nurses being bullied, and 50% said that they had actually been bullied themselves. Well, in part due to that survey, the Joint Commission made one of their 2012 patient safety goals, the prevention and elimination of workplace incivility. Well, another group of researchers did a follow-up in 2013. You would think after all the work the Joint Commission had done, things would really be looking up. But what they found after all that work was that 26% of nurses still reported they were bullied on a daily basis, and 36% reported they were being bullied at least on a weekly basis and at least had been for six months. Now, when we think about who is bullying nurses, a lot of people think about the physician, right? Or maybe it's the nurse managers, or maybe it's patients and families. And I'm not going to discount that because all of those populations have been guilty of bullying nurses in the past. But the research that's been done on the topic is very consistent, that between 60 to 64% of bullying that's inflicted upon nurses comes from other nurses at the same peer level. And in regard to newer nurses, and that's defined as nurses with three years or less of nursing experience, that number rises to 90%. We definitely do eat our young. So bullying has catastrophic healthcare outcomes, and I'll tell you about four populations it affects. And the first is individual nurses. So physical problems such as headaches and GI distress or an inability to eat or an inability to sleep have been tracked back to nurse-to-nurse -nurse bullying. Psychological issues such as depression and anxiety. And when I did my original literature research for this topic, I was shocked to find accounts of nurses that had either attempted suicide or committed suicide because they felt so ostracized by their peers. Now at first blush, that seems a little dramatic and a little far-fetched, I'll give you that. But if you think about the fact that many of us spend 40 hours plus every week with our nursing colleagues, it's really not hard to understand how those relationships can either harm or enhance our physical and psychological well-being. All right, now is anyone here in here a nurse manager? No, a nursing supervisor in any way? So if you're uh, in a supervisory position over a team and you want to have a healthy work environment, which is a real popular buzzword out there, then you have to address nurse-to-nurse -nurse bullying. Because I'm here to tell you without a doubt that bullying in any way, shape, or form and a healthy work environment do not coexist. From just a dollars and cents level, bullying has a catastrophic effect on hospital organizations. There was a study done back in 2010 that looked at nurses who left their very first nursing job within the first six months. And what the study was getting at is, why did you leave so soon? Well, the primary reason was not pay or parking, but it was because they felt bullied by their peers and they were frustrated at their nurse manager's lack of willingness or lack of ability to do anything about it. So if you consider that for every time we replace a nurse, it costs between $22,000 and $145,000 with orientation and their, you know, things like that, depending on what type of unit you're in, it's not hard to understand that this phenomenon has a, a big effect on the hospital's bottom line. Globally, healthcare bullying has been blamed for $4 billion healthcare dollars wasted every year 
purely in the United States. It's a big deal. And that's due to things such as the continuous replacement of nurses, also medication errors, and patient injury, which takes me to the last population, which is the patients. So consider, if you will, a nurse who's been working in an acute care unit, and she got a job in an intensive care unit. She is super excited. But she knows that the stakes are high, and there's lots of problems that can happen with medications and ICUs, sometimes a very narrow window of, of safeness. And so she is in orientation, and she keeps going to her preceptor and other nurses and asking to have her medications double-checked. Well, one day she asked someone to double-check her meds with her, and the nurse says, listen, the rest of us have been talking, and we figured this out way sooner than you did. You either need to pull it together or you're not going to cut it in here. Well, what do you think that nurse is going to do likely? Not get her meds checked. She, she's going to quit asking. So she does quit asking, and she gives a near-lethal dose of a medication to a patient. Or think about the nurse who just has a very simple thing that needs to happen. Her patient needs to go to the bathroom. So she goes up to the front desk, and she sees a group of her colleagues laughing and talking. And she said, hey, my patient needs to go to the bathroom. Can someone help me? Nobody answers. <clears throat> she clears her throat. She says a little louder, my patient needs to go to the bathroom. Can somebody help me? And then the eyes start rolling, and still she's blatantly ignored. Well, she takes her patient to the bathroom. So she gets her patient up, and off they go. And in the floor, her patient goes. So both of those scenarios I told you, I didn't make up. They're in the literature written by nurses as actually happening and actually being related back to nurse-to-nurse -nurse bullying. So nurse-to-nurse -nurse bullying dates back to the 1800s, and I'll be very honest with you, that's just what I found in my literature search, and I would bet my bottom dollar that it predates the 1800s. There's two current bodies of literature about nurse-to-nurse -nurse bullying, and this is the reason I chose this topic. There's one body of literature that says nurse-to-nurse -nurse bullying is a problem. It is the greatest amount of healthcare bullying that happens, period, and it causes lots of negative outcomes. There's another body of literature that says nurse managers are the key. Number one, you set an example by how you treat your team. You set expectations. You hold people accountable. You're the ones who are responsible for the healthy work environment, right? But there was nothing in the middle that said, I am a nurse manager, and this is what I believe bullying looks like. And when I see that, this is what I do. One of the problems is that bullying is often very hard for nurse managers to spot. So there's two types of bullying. Now, this is what we probably usually think of. I mean, it's not hard to see. This chick is screaming, and she's pointing her finger in his face. And that's an example of overt bullying. So overt bullying is something that's easy to identify. You can look at this to tell somebody's mistreating somebody else. Things like name-calling, physical intimidation, or physical assault. Very easy to spot. The funny thing about overt bullying is that it is very rare that it, would, it happens between nurses. It hardly ever happens. But there's another type of bullying, and that's what this young lady is dealing with. So this is an example of covert bullying. Covert bullying is very passive-aggressive, very insidious, and unless you really understand the behaviors, very hard to identify. Things like the charge nurse who constantly gives the same nurse the most undesirable assignment or the hardest assignment because she needs to prove herself to work in this unit, or isolation and exclusion like this young lady has, or refusing to help her, which we just talked about. The problem with covert bullying is it is so widespread, so unidentified, that it's very dangerous to healthcare outcomes.
So all of that said, the purpose of this research study that we did was to evaluate the nurse manager knowledge and perceptions of, of bullying as well as their response level to bullying behaviors. And then we're not going to stop there. We're not going to do that research and say, yay, we're disseminating it. So talking to groups like I am today, um, teaching nurse managers about what nurse-to-nurse -nurse bullying looks like, and all nurse leaders, what can you do about it? What are some strategies? And actually, the American Nurses Association has some really great strategies on their website. And I was part of a group that we just finished the um, position statement on bullying, healthcare bullying, but I'll tell you that doesn't matter. The, the position statement doesn't matter if we don't use it. So unlike the first two studies, this was a national study and it was a web-based survey and it was administered through SurveyMonkey. There were three distinct sections of the survey and the first was demographics. And the demographics that we looked at were um, the years of nurse manager experience, the education level of the nurse manager, what type of unit that nurse manager managed, and how many employees did he or she supervise. Did he or she work in an academic medical center or a magnet facility? And had he or she ever witnessed nurse-to-nurse bullying or been a victim? Oops. Next um, was the identification questions, and that was 20 behaviors, simply 10 overt behaviors and 10 covert. And each came with a Likert scale. And if the nurse manager chose one, then she was saying, this is not a bullying behavior in my opinion. But if she chose seven, she was saying, this is the most egregious of bullying behaviors. And that was followed up with 12 scenarios that depicted bullying behaviors. Six of them were covert bullying and six were overt, and they too came with a Likert scale. And if the nurse manager chose one, she's saying, well, I wouldn't do anything. I would let my staff nurses handle this. But if she chose seven, she was saying, whatever I had the full authority to do, I would do. Whether that would be a write-up or a suspension or even a termination, I would take the strongest stand that I have the authority to do. And this survey was completed last summer, 2014, over four weeks. We had five research questions. This was a pretty robust survey. The first one is, what are nurse managers' past experiences with bullying? The second one is there a difference in the nurse manager's identification of bullying behaviors based on those demographics I just told you? We followed that up with, is there a difference in the nurse manager's level of response to bullying behaviors based on those same demographics? Next, we wanted to know, is there a relationship between the nurse manager's identification of bullying behaviors and the nurse manager's response to bullying behaviors? And lastly, is there a difference in the nurse manager's level of response to covert bullying as compared to the nurse manager's level of response to overt bullying? In total, we had 380 nurse managers who responded to our survey, and we'll just dig into the results. We learned that 325 of our participants, or 86%, had witnessed nurse-to-nurse -nurse bullying, and 221, which was 58%, said, well, I've been a victim of bullying myself. Now, the next question, was there a difference in the nurse manager's identification of bullying behaviors based on demographics? Well, first, let me tell you what I thought. I thought certainly if a nurse manager had a doctorate degree, she would have a better handle on this than a nurse manager with an associate's degree, right? I mean, I thought so. Or if the nurse manager had many, many years of nursing experience, she would have a better handle on it. And certainly nurse managers in magnet facilities would understand the behaviors better. But I'm here to tell you I was wrong on all accounts. 
The only two factors that were statistically significant were if that nurse manager had either witnessed nurse-to-nurse bullying in the past or been a victim herself. So when you think about that from a purely human level, that makes sense, right? Because they could really personalize those behaviors. Next, was there a difference in the nurse manager's level of response to the bullying behaviors based on those demographics? Well, if a nurse manager identified him or herself as having been victimized before, that was a statistically significant difference for them addressing the behaviors. Interestingly enough, the years of nurse manager experience was statistically significant. However, only for nurse managers who had been in supervisory roles for 21 years or greater. So what I'm telling you is the nurse managers who had been hired last month or last week, compared to nurse managers with up to 20 years of experience, there was no statistically significant difference. Was there a relationship between the nurse manager's identification of bullying behaviors and their response to bullying behaviors? So if they identified them, did they do anything? Well, there was a positive correlation. So as the identification scores rose, so did the response scores. There was only a moderate correlation. So we dug into that to figure out what that means. And what we found out was when we normalized all of our scores to a 0 to 100 scale, there was, for every single demographic, a higher score for identification than response. In some categories, as much as 20 or more points higher, which means that, yes, you can identify it, but then what are you going to do about it? How are you going to stop it? Next, was there a difference in the nurse manager's level of response to covert bullying? Again, insidious, widespread as compared to overt bullying. Well, probably nobody in the room is shocked that the nurse managers were more apt to address the overt bullying because it's in your face than the covert bullying. That's significant because that really happens. So the next steps. A few things that I found is that Nurse leaders at all levels have to be open to the fact that nurse-to-nurse -nurse bullying is a problem that causes negative effects to healthcare outcomes. In these two years, I have talked to hundreds of nurse managers on this topic, and I've even encountered some that said, nurses don't bully each other. But the literature and the evidence out there tells us that yes, they do. We didn't get the term nurses eat their young for no good reason. We absolutely bully each other. Next, support has to be provided for these nurse managers to address the issue. Now, when I was talking to these nurse managers, there was a cohort of them that really bothered me. And that was the cohort that could identify it spot on, and they were addressing it spot on, but they were going stepwise through their organization's process. And when they would get to the level of termination, they would be stopped because they would be told, you know, you want to keep working with them. They might appeal it. Is it this drastic? And so on and so forth. The population that bothers me is the population that came from organizations that have beautifully written zero tolerance policies. So why does an organization have a zero tolerance bullying policy if nurse managers do not have the education to understand the phenomenon and the authority to address it when they need to? Next. I think it's very important that myself and the rest of my team, I'll tell you, I didn't do this alone. I worked with another nurse from the University of Virginia, and I worked with actually an associate chief of nursing at Duke University, who's been an important nursing mentor to me. But we're all very involved in educating about this, educating staff nurses, who quite frankly, I'll tell you, staff nurses understand this phenomenon way better than nursing leadership does. But anyway, 
in educating all nurses about this and what can we do and how can we stop this and how can we just really be that kind, caring, compassionate profession we want to be. Dissemination is really important, and so I'm going to ask you all for some really good mojo because this study is right now sitting on the editor's desk at Nursing Administration Quarterly, and they're considering publishing it. So tonight, just come on, throw a happy word up for us. <laughs> so that's really all I've got about those three studies, and I hope that it was clear to you how frontline nurses make a difference every day by doing nursing research. I'll tell you, if I can do it, you can do it. So I just came up with a few tips just for those of you who are starting to, to think about this. Number one is be sure you choose topics that both you and your team are interested in. Because if you choose a topic that you're interested in but your team's not, you're going to be doing the study on your own. If you choose a topic your team is passionate about but you're not, you're going to be a really pitiful leader. So choose something, if you choose to be a principal investigator, that everybody on the team is excited about. Next, stay enthusiastic, whether you're the member of the team or whether you're the principal investigator. I'll tell you that second study, the post-op nausea and vomiting study, we really believed we were going to have that wrapped up pretty with a bow in two months. And in reality, it took us over a year. So the team started to get tired, and they were like, girl, what are we doing? We're tired. We don't want to do this. And someone had to be the cheerleader, and that was me. And we had celebrations at the 50-patient mark and the 100-patient mark, and we had lots of laughs over the funny things that we heard from patients and families when we visited. I mean, they told us the funniest stories about their hospital experiences. And so we just had to stay enthusiastic and know that in the end, this was valuable work. Always have good mentors. I mean, from Susie Burns to um, Susie actually retired and Beth Quantrar took over as the research mentorship director to John Hudson, my, my um, colleague at Duke University. Always have good mentors because none of us knows everything about everything and there's good people out there to learn from. So along with that, know your resources. Other nurses who have done research, I'll tell you, experts on topics are more than willing to talk to nurse researchers. For every one of these studies, I tapped into the experts because, you know, they're passionate about it. They want more evidence to go out there. And also know your limitations. There's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know what in the world I've gotten into, a national study, what? And getting someone to help you. So don't be shy in doing that. The number one thing that I'll tell you is know that you can do it because frontline nurses have the capacity to do amazing research. And remember, there have been millions of frontline nurses that have gone before you that have done it. They have no more capacity to do it than you do. If they can do it and if I can do it, anybody can do it. So that's really all I've got today. Um, I just, again, want to thank Gay. I want to thank you guys. This has been an amazing experience. And I know we have just a few minutes left. I'll answer any questions, and then I'm going to be here this afternoon. I could talk to anybody about either of these three studies or just nursing research in general. So thank you, guys. Did anyone have any thoughts or questions or any lingering ideas? Now, have each of y'all been able to identify just that one topic that you're interested in, that why do we do it this way, or isn't there a better way? Just, just one topic? You can do as many as you want, girl. <laughs> I didn't want to stretch you too much, you know, in the, in the first hour, but if you want to do way more than one topic, you know, the sky's the limit. 
Yes, ma'am. Issue that I've seen with um, a lot of our staff nurses is they don't feel like they have the time to come in for meetings or time to come in extra. So, how did you guys approach that? With yeah, well, we actually incorporated. I'll tell you in the PICU, we did not have a really good structure for it. We just sort of did it on the sly and, you know, it was a small group. It was just five of us. So we could sort of plan meetings around when we could. For the, the study in the PACU, we actually made research part of, part of our shared governance. So we had an allotted time to have meetings. Now in the PACU, I will openly admit we had an advantage over other units because our PACU, well, our ORs have a late day on Wednesdays. So we have all of our meetings on Wednesday mornings. But that said, we're the only unit in the hospital that has that luxury. So really the way that we've been successful at UVA is by pulling this into shared governance. And our shared governance has really been protected in that we have have come up with strategies to be sure that nurses are able to participate in shared governance. And, you know, shared governance at UVA is really cool because everybody participates, everybody doesn't have to go to meetings. So there's plenty of people who don't want to go to the meetings and they're more than happy to pitch in and help out to cover those in meetings because they want no part of it. So we've really had to be flexible in that way. Now, the, the other study I did, the bigger study, even though that was the bigger study, honestly, that was the easiest because it was a it was a survey online. And so putting that together and working with my two colleagues, it wasn't quite as as cumbersome as the other two studies. But I just think it takes a real um, dedication from everyone on the team that we want this to work and pitching in in whatever way it is, whether it's just covering or being in part of the group, however. So yes, ma'am. Question. One of the things that um, I observed at UVA is that with nurses being engaged in research that was really grounded and, and helping uh, improve care for patients, that the physician's perspective on nurses really shift. Mm -hmm. the, the, the respect for the scholarly part of nurses was, was really, really powerful. And, and the nurses had generated that just by what they were doing. Could you talk about that just a little bit? I would agree. Yeah, we do. A, um, we have worked really hard at UVA to let it be known that we are as important to patients as anybody. And I would argue that we, I don't think patients necessarily go to the hospital for physician care. I think they go for nursing care. And we have made it really a mission to build relationships with the physicians that are very collegial and very equal. So there's not a hierarchy at UVA. Some physicians try to have a hierarchy, but they're acclimated really quickly, that that's just not the way we operate. So we've worked really hard to really become equal colleagues with our physician partners. And that post-op nausea and vomiting study, the medical director for the PACU came to every one of our meetings and gave his input and asked questions. And he was as much a part of forming that study as the 16 of us were. So we really try to build relationships that are, you know, it's not me doing things for patients. It's not you doing things for patients. It's us doing things for patients and staff and organizations and really healthcare as a whole as a team. So we really do have a team approach. And I think, you know, 
I know that you guys are just starting on this research fellowship track, but I think that you'll notice, you know, we've been doing ASK for 11 years, that over time, physicians will be coming to you saying, so what are you studying now? What have you found? And they'll get really excited about what is nursing doing to improve care? So I think, you know, if I come back in 10 years, I think y'all will be telling me just these amazing stories. So. Any other thoughts? Yes, ma'am. You guys do all your statistical analysis. Well, I'm taking three statistics through the health system, and I would imagine y'all probably have the same here. So, and they're amazing. Now, for that last study, because it was part of my DMP program, this girl did the statistics, and and I'm like you, I didn't like it, and I complained the whole way, and I said, you know, to my professor, I can't stand statistics, and he said, plug on, girl, you're you're finding great things, but no, you don't have to do the statistics. You know, I think that's the neat thing is you know, using your resources. I mean, I am not gonna be a statistician ever, period. I don't like it, I'm just like you. But if I can do the work and tap into my statistician colleagues who for some weird reason really enjoy that, then by all means. And now when we published, when we published the PACU study, the post-op nausea and vomiting study, we included our statistician as one of the authors because, you know, it's a huge, we could not have, figured that out had it not been for him. So yeah, use your resources, girl, I'm with you. Ian, we have a director of nursing research coming on board. So, I mean, she's already been hired and be starting in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. yeah. So she'll be a great resource for you as well. And she may actually, she probably does like statistics, right? To a degree. <laughs> I mean, one of the biggest things I learned finishing my PhD is always have a statistician. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely, I would agree, yeah. Well, I sure do appreciate you guys. I hope that each of you can sort of take away a pearl from one of these studies. You know, whether you're in pediatrics, I know some of you guys are from the surgical world. Woo woo! So, you know, if y'all could take something from that, but if not, you know, even from the last study, just just be kind to each other. That's what I would say. Thank um, you. All right, guys. Thanks so much. <laughs>